All right, well, good morning. Um, we continue our sermon series on following greatness. In a minute, we're going to read the Word of God together um, and then learn how it speaks to our lives. Uh, before we do that, I just want to share on like a personal note how much just like faith and confidence and hope I have for all of us that God's word speaks even today. It wasn't just finished 2,000 years ago and now it's silent. I can tell you it's changed me. Whether it's as a soldier in Iraq wrestling with death, whether it's getting married and not knowing what to do to be a good husband, whether it's having kids who many of you know do not come with an instruction manual. The Bible has been a constant source of hope, but also a source of change. And I'm confident that if you can do it for someone like me, oh man, I can do it for someone like you as well. All right, now as we get into reading the Word of God, I've got two questions for you. I want you to hold these in mind as my clicker is not working. All right. What is the deepest satisfaction in life for the man we're going to read about that runs up to Jesus? And then what is the deepest satisfaction in life for the disciples who are following Jesus? Hear now the word of God. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one Thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, with not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and lands and persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the Word of God. Did you get any idea as to the answer to those two questions? Hang on to them. I'm not going to ask you. I'd love to poll you and see what you think. But um, this really 
Do we have a demon in the TV? No? Okay. It's just operator error. There we go. All right. Before we get into what you think those answers are and what I think the answers to those questions are, I I just want to highlight and maybe underline and accent our society today and a materialistic strain, a a, uh, preoccupation with possessions that is so prominent in our society. Um, If you don't believe me, uh, just consider some of these following evidences. Slate Magazine ran an article in 2005 with uh, an interesting commentary on our society. As of 2005, self-storage units in the United States account for nearly 2 billion square feet. This is at a time where the average home has gone up from 1,700 square feet in 1973, so 1,700, to 2004, where the average home is 2,400 square feet. San Diegans feel ripped off, by the way. (laughs) But so houses are getting larger Families are getting smaller, and we need more storage? What does that say? Mount Holyoke College did some research, and here's what they found. Americans spend three to four times more time shopping than Europeans do. CBS ran an article about a month ago on credit card spending in the United States. The average debt per household is almost back at the level of the 2008 recession. One spokesperson for the group that did this study said, this is a sign that Americans haven't really learned their lesson. Their attitude behind credit card debt hasn't improved since the recession. If you're a retailer, I'm sorry, but I had to bring that up. Look at our billboards. Look at our commercials. What do they tell you? What are they preaching? The majority of them try to convince you that your life would just be better if you would buy this product. Is that true? It is. Okay, GQ. I want to take a swing of GQ here, so bear with me. On their website last night, here were some, not all, but here's a sampling of the articles that I found. Um, Number one, the eight Tom Cruise's clothing items in Tom Cruise history. Okay? Gear that will help you resurrect your fitness goals. All right, hang on to this one. Watch, this this is funny. Gear that will help you resurrect your fitness goals. The next article, five items that will help resurrect your failed New Year's fitness goals. Did they just like double paste the link or something? Like, what's going on here, guys? Finally, my favorite... Dressing room confessions of an anxious male shopper. That guy had courage. Our society is notorious for consumerism and materialism. Let's just own it. It's in our cultural air that we breathe. It's in the cultural water that we drink. It's in our subconscious. Just so you're not alone, here's how it hits me. A while back, I decided to give up reading GQ. I got married and said, there is no way I can be faithful to my wife in my mind if I'm constantly looking at pictures of women where there's more flesh than there is, like, covering of the flesh. All right? It's just not going to happen. I think most guys go, yeah, yeah. We need more than, like, masking tape and dental floss uh, if we're going to be faithful to our wives. So I I can use that line of reasoning and not read GQ magazine, but... Here's the line of reasoning I didn't use. 
I can resist all the like female skin and identify with, this isn't really good for me. But all of the suits, all of the watches, the knives, all of the gear for your next vacation, they even tell you what the price is, where to get it, and I think they even have online links. I did not say, this is not good for me. Man, I read this passage, I studied it, and I was totally convicted. Why wasn't that a line of reasoning? My wife's like, well, I like the first line of reasoning. (laughs) It's still true. But do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how easily it can slide in there into our mindset? And how do we change from that once we recognize it? This passage this morning has the power to help us combat it in ourselves and in our society. We're going to get at the power to be liberated from materialism in three ways. First, I'm really bad at this clicker thing. First, we're going to see that false greatness is finding satisfaction in stuff. Next, we're going to see that true greatness is finding satisfaction in the sun. And then finally, we will see that gospel change is really about God finding you and being satisfied in you. With that said, let's move into our first point. False greatness, finding satisfaction in TVs, clickers, stuff. All right, there we go. As we move into this, as we look at false greatness, as we seek and learn to find out about how finding satisfaction in stuff is a false form of greatness, let's actually look at this man that Jesus that ran up to Jesus. Let's ask a couple questions of him. We're going to ask first, who is he? What's he about? Then we're going to ask, why does he reject Jesus? And then we're going to ask, why is this important? All right, so who is this man? Well, number one, We know from Mark and Luke that he's rich, he's young, and he's actually called a ruler. All right, you may have read this story before. You might see a subheading in your Bible that says the rich young ruler. That's where this is coming from. It's the first thing we know about this guy. The next thing gets a little trickier. It depends on how you read verses 17 and 18. Uh, Stephen and I, as we were talking about this passage at first, we we, we actually read it in different ways, and the commentators kind of go different routes. They'll, they'll look at that, that line to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And some of you will read that and you'll go, he's trying to snow Jesus. He's trying to flatter him. He's trying to get something out of him. He's setting him up. Some of the commentators will go that way. Others will say, no, this guy's actually sincere. And he's coming close to the end of his rope. He needs help. All right, you see how you can read it either way? I'm going to do my best to convince you that he's actually being sincere. Let's look at this guy. In verse 17, this rich young man runs to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've never had a rich person run up to me. Unless I owed him money. Or her. Right? That's just, that's kind of not dignified for a rich person to do. It's even more true in the society of Jesus' day. This guy would be running on a hot dusty road, without Nikes, without asphalt. He would have to be wearing clothing such that he would have to hitch up his robes like some antebellum bell, like from Gone with the Wind, and kind of run doing one of these. I feel weird doing it on stage. This guy ran to Jesus. This doesn't sound like flattery to me. What does he do when he gets to Jesus? He kneels. He kneels at Jesus' feet. In verse 21, 
What's Jesus' response to this guy? He looks at him and what? This is the only time in Mark's gospel that it says Jesus loves somebody. It sounds like a sincere guy. So number one, this is a sincere man, not a flatterer. What else can we learn about this rich, young, sincere ruler? He's a devout Jew. He's religious. Let's go back to uh, verse 19. Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Jesus does not say, what are the commandments? Don't you know the commandments? Have you read the commandments? He says, you know them. Jesus presumes that this guy knows his Bible. You see that? And then this guy can say in verse 20 with a straight face, I've kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus loves him for it. So we've got a rich, young, sincere ruler who's a good Jew. If he lived today, he'd be a good church member. Finally, he's also a sincere seeker. If he's a sincere guy, he's running up to Jesus saying, good teacher, what what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking for something. And he's recognizing that he might can get it from Jesus. So our rich, young, sincere, devout, seeking ruler is actually a good guy. He's not the Pharisees that Jesus blasts. He's not the Sadducees, another group of religious leaders that Jesus blasts. He's not going toe-to-toe with this guy in a verbal argument. He loves this guy. You catch that? If he were alive today, this is what he would be like, and this is why it's important. He would be a really good church member. He'd be like you and me and what we aspire to be or should aspire to be. As one who keeps the commandments, he might even be better than you and me. He can say, I don't lie to get ahead. He helps the poor. He doesn't take advantage of women. He attends life group faithfully, consistently. He serves on time. That was funny. (laughs) He tithes faithfully and consistently. He reads his Bible daily. Can we really say that about ourselves? It's true consistently about us. Our single ladies at Harbor City Church would line up to meet this guy, if I can be so bold. And we would encourage it. (laughs) Man, friends, I hope you see that this guy is a stud. He is a stud churchgoer in his day. He would be in our day. And I say this because it means whatever can happen to him can happen to you and me. And I just hope and encourage you to see yourself identifying at least somewhat with this guy as we move on. Now, we've looked at who this guy is. Let's ask, why does he reject Jesus? Some of you will be like, well, well, John, just look, verse 22, possessions. He walks away. There's a little bit more going on than just that. There's something very interesting that Jesus is doing here. Jesus says, you know the commandments, and then he rattles off six of them. You get the impression that Jesus is going, boom, 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 boom. Right? He stops at six. 
He doesn't go on. For those of you who don't know, something that's very important in the Jewish faith, something that's very important in the Christian faith, we call the Ten Commandments. All right, I'm going to do a quick little side detour, just do a quick teaching on the Ten Commandments, because it's vital to see what Jesus is doing and how he's interacting with this guy. In the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. All right, Mark, hit it, man. Go. Go. I totally forgot the Princess Leia thing. You all have to forgive me. It was good, I promise. All right. Ten Commandments. Jesus lists six of the commandments, just to bring us back up to speed. All right? First four commandments. Not the first five, but the first four are called the first table of the law. Watch this. Have no other gods before me. Worship me alone, not false images. Do not take my name in vain. Uh, Rest on the Sabbath by giving it to me. Mark. These are vertical in their nature. They are about right relationship with God. That's the summary of these first four. When Jesus says the two greatest commandments are love God with all you got, love other people with all you got, on this all the law hangs. He's summarizing the first four to get love God with all you got. Do you see all the me, the relationship to God? That's the first table of the law. All right, now let's go to the second table of the law. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. These are horizontal. They're about right relationship with other people. This is where Jesus gets, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he summarizes these six with the second greatest commandment in the law. See that? Clear? This is important. Let's go back to verse 19. And let's do a little checklist and see which ones Jesus is getting at. First one is, come on, Harbor. Do not murder. Thank you. Number six. What's next? Do not commit. All right. Next. Don't bear false witness. Do you see what he's doing? Now, the next one is, do not defraud. Jesus doesn't come out and say, do not covet. Mark and I double Go back one. There we go. All right. He doesn't say, do not covet. He says, do not defraud. All right. Now, at first, you're like, whoa, what's going on? He's breaking the pattern. No, here's what's going on. Throughout all of Scripture, when it, when like the prophets will blast the rich, what they're getting onto the rich for is for defrauding the poor. They're coveting the poor's money. Does a rich person really covet? Now, they can go out and just buy it, right? But the one thing they can't get is other people's money. So when Scripture condemns the poor, the rich, not that it's bad to be rich, but when Scripture condemns the rich, it's for this reason. So do not covet is the same as do not fraud. Is that good? Convince you? All right, let's go on. What's the next one? He circles back to the top. Honor your father and mother. He has gone through the second table of the law. See that? What does he not include? The first table. Very, very cool. Do you see what Jesus is starting to do? This is called the setup. When I was a boy, my dad was really good when I was in trouble at doing this. He'd set me up and then he'd get me. Jesus is about to do this with this young man. Let me show you how. By not asking him, hey, do you have any other gods before me? Well, how would this man answer the question? 
No, thank you. That was beautiful, whoever said that. Of course not. If I asked any of you that, if you asked me that, no. There's one God, God alone. I don't know. I don't have gods before God. So Jesus, rather than telling him, gets at it in an indirect fashion where he shows the man he's breaking one of the first four commandments. He basically hands this man a diagnostic and says, your stuff or me? What's it going to be? What are you going to pursue? The blinders come off of the man, and he's, you got to think he's got this in mind. Is there going to be a God before me? And what's the man's response? Did you catch that he's not defensive? He doesn't argue with Jesus. There's no but, 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 but game. There's no, this is why I'm an exception, Jesus. The guy, it says he's disheartened, and that word can also be translated appalled, shocked, in a state of intense dismay. The blinders are off, and he sees his relationship with God, and it creates sorrow. If he were defensive, he would be irate. He would be angry. He would say what a lot of people say. Well, I'm just going to another synagogue. I like the pastor over there better anyways. This guy doesn't do that. Jesus is trying to show this man, you've got a God before me. And this is called idolatry. There's a false God. There's an idol in his life, and it is his stuff. Here's a helpful definition for you of idolatry. This is a quick side note. So a man named Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, he and one of his friends have gone through our Westminster Shorter Catechism and another denomination's catechism. Catechism is a series of questions and answers where we train our young kids on how to articulate the gospel, how to understand the gospel, what it is they are to believe. Well, he's shortened it down, and he's brought the language from the 1600s into our day. And this is one of his questions. What is idolatry? I find this so helpful. I'd encourage you to think on this, reflect on this, look it up online. Idolatry is trusting in created things instead of the creator. Does that sound like this guy? He's trusting in it for his hope, his happiness, his significance, and his security. In short, life's deepest satisfaction for this man is his stuff, not God. Friends, if this can happen to this guy who would be like the super churchgoer, it can happen to us. And if you remember the introduction, the Slate magazine, GQ magazine, the two billion square feet, How much easier is it to happen in our society, especially at a very subtle, you don't even realize this is happening to me level? It's there. Let's look for it. And let me issue a caution. Materialism and the pursuit of stuff is a false greatness. And here's why. Number one, it's a false greatness because it leads to violence and suffering. Some of you will want me to go big level and say, look at the wars fought in the name of getting land and stuff and resources. I'm going to take you to Black Friday. Since 2006, seven people have died on Black Friday as a result of consumerism and materialism. 
98 people have been injured seriously over the last 10 years. For what? Stuff. Cheaper stuff. These deaths include stabbing, shooting, getting hit by a car, falling asleep at the wheel due to exhaustion and driving off the road, merchandise falling onto people, and trampling. The injuries include pepper spray. It's a false greatness. And finally, the victims of Black Friday include children. It's not just adults. It's a no-holds-barred. Second, it's false because it leads to no gain in happiness. Um, So I researched the American Psychological Association, Psychology Today, and a very good book called The High Price of Materialism. They all concur. And they all say that other researchers concur on this point. Once your basic needs are met, there is no correlation whatsoever between wealth and happiness. Every single study yields this. There's no correlation between wealth and happiness. Uh, Of these, Psychology Today breaks it down a little bit further. They report that billionaires actually have a higher rate of depression than people with an average level of income. The glow of acquiring something new, we all know what's coming, rarely lasts beyond a few days, possibly a few weeks. Anybody identify with that? I remember as a kid, my Christmas gifts come February. I was ready for birthday. Sound familiar? Guys, it's me too. The ego boost you get from a new toy. I have this. It might be, I have this and other people will respect me. I have this and other people don't. But that ego boost can go away so quickly when somebody comes along with something better. It's not satisfying. It's a false greatness. Third, it's false because it blocks generosity and mercy. While Jesus is not saying that you have to sell everything and give to the poor to be a Christian, what he's doing is he's actually pushing this guy on, hey, will you follow me and give up the number one thing in your life to make me the number one thing in your life? He's not saying to be a Christian, everybody has to do this. Do you see that? He's pushing him on his idolatry, not laying down a give the church all your money. I'll take it, but you don't have to do that to be a Christian. All right? But it can block generosity and mercy. If we're hoarding stuff, if we're putting our money into stuff that we throw away six months later, where else could that money have gone? I was convicted on this with my tithing this week. I was like, oh man, I have been basically telling myself I'm in grad school, I've got three kids, including a newborn. Life is hard. We're taking student loans. You know, we can kind of waffle a little bit on the tithe. This convicted me that no, 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 no. I'm putting myself first. I'm putting other things first. And we had to, like, change that uh, and reverse that course in our life. Finally, it's false because it masters you and it owns you. How many people do you know or are you this person? You track when the new iPhone is coming out. And you can't wait. And it's not satisfying anymore. Why? Because the iPad came out. And now we're on iPad 3, I think. All right? Now that's not satisfying because we have the iWatch. I was this way with 720p to 1080p on HDTVs, my wife will tell you. 
It can own you. It can master you. It can consume your thinking and not just your wallet. Friends, I hope you see that this is a false greatness. It's a satisfaction that's fleeting and it's temporary. I want to close with, in this section, is this you? Is this me? Here are some diagnostic questions to help you see if there's a false satisfaction claiming your heart. What or who would your bank statements and credit card statements claim that you worship? Here's one. Would you let somebody else look at it and answer that question for you? Are you like me where you instantly go, no, privacy, America? No, you can't look at that. And it's really a defense mechanism. I'm guilty too, guys. For those of us here who are Christians and followers of Jesus, would our tithing record claim that we really love Jesus and put him first? I think that's a fair question. I'm not trying to shame you into giving more money to the church at all. I'm asking a diagnostic. I'd rather have your heart than your wallet, and I'd really rather Jesus have your heart than your wallet. He's just going to say, everything is mine. I gave it to you. Are you giving back? Do you love me? Do you spend more time shopping, browsing Amazon, uh, eBay, whatever, than you do in prayer, than you do with a life group, or even spending time in the Bible? That might help you. So if it's not stuff your money is mostly aimed at, I might not be hitting some of you. You're like, that's not me. That just, ping, goes right away. I'm not going to do that again. Um, If it's not stuff, that your money is aimed at, or that your heart is aimed at, it might be a different type of idolatry. Do you live for the cool experiences? I love being in the Army on active duty and having friends who are C-17 pilots in the Air Force because they could get me free flights to Europe. Every Brock leave, I was gone. I've got so many pictures from countries that other people haven't been to, and I feel cool because of it. That's idolatry. Well, it can be. All right, It's not that it is, but it definitely can be. Vacations that are unrealistic and we rack up more credit card debt. What about a home? Having the right home in the right neighborhood. What's causing you to rack up debt? Or where's the area of your budget that's out of control? And if it's not the budgeting of your money, it might be the budgeting of your time. We will answer to Jesus for how we spend our time. This is where you will find idols. So friends... And I mean the word, all right? I'm not just saying it because it like makes you like me or something. Friends, brothers, sisters, I hope you see why Jesus has such strong wording about how difficult it is for rich people to enter into his kingdom. It's not that Jesus hates rich people. That's not the case. He had rich friends. We know this. His followers, like Paul, had rich friends. He just gets, Jesus gets at the deepest level, how enticing possessions can be, and how they can take over your life. It's so easy and so subtle when you have means to slide into pursuing possessions instead of following him wholeheartedly. It's false greatness, and it's a false satisfaction. Now, we're going to move into true greatness, which is finding satisfaction in the sun. What's the antidote to our consumeristic society? What's the antidote to my own heart and the ways that it will go astray? 
The answer is true greatness and finding satisfaction in God's Son, Jesus Christ. There's two ways we're going to see this in the text. We're going to see that we actually have blessings in the now. Then we're going to see that we have blessings in the not yet. We have blessings in eternal life, blessings in the age to come. We've got blessings in both. We're not the rich young ruler who has blessings in one. We're not like some of our brothers and sisters who say this world is horrible. There's blessings in the world to come. No, in Jesus we get both. And it's awesome. All right, so in verse 28, the first blessing that you get is a family that will watch out for your needs. In verse 28, Peter begins to say, Jesus, um, Rabbi, buddy, um, you're talking about this. What, what, what do we get? We left everything and we followed you. What does Jesus say? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't say. He does not say, oh yeah, you guys, you, my disciples, and you alone, you get, and then all those blessings. He says, there is no one, and then in verse 30 he says, who will not receive all these blessings that he talks about. And that blessing, by and large, is a family. Everyone who treasures Jesus above all else, to the point where he reigns highest in the heart, as the source of hope, happiness, significance, and security, the highest satisfaction in life. Everyone who treasures Jesus above family, house, lands, which is like work, career, uh, means of consumption, and follows Jesus. Loving Jesus is following Jesus. The people who love Jesus, the people who follow Jesus. And watch what following Jesus is in verse 17. First couple words. As he, Jesus, verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey. Is he going on vacay? No. Is he taking a little break from ministry? A little burnout? No. We know from Mark 9, 30 through 32, and if you're following along in your Bibles, just read the next couple verses, 32 and 33. Where is he headed? He's headed to the city of Jerusalem, and he's headed there to die. And as he heads there to die, he's calling the rich young ruler to go with him to the cross. He's going to reconcile to God, us, wayward sinners who take our deepest satisfaction from things other than God. He's on a journey. So to the people who give up everything, as Jesus says, for my sake and for the gospel, and follow me on my mission of reconciliation, you have a family. When we have faith in Jesus, we get his family. That's where he can say the hundredfold there in the text. It's a larger crowd than the one we're called out of. It's a much larger crowd. Do you see verse 30 a little bit more clearly now? Does that make more sense? What does this mean? I get mothers and children. Some of you are like, I don't like the one I have. Why do I want more? No, he's saying you will have a family of brothers and sisters in the faith. He's saying you will have children in the faith. And their lands, their homes will be open to you and yours to them. Is that a good way to live? That sounds satisfying. In fact, let me, let me read for you uh, from the book of Acts. This is the first description of the New Testament uh, version of the church. When 3,000 people come to faith at the very first Christian sermon, Peter and Pentecost in Acts 2, here's the result. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. 
One of the blessings is they get trained. To the breaking of bread and to the prayers, they're growing in Christ. And all came upon every soul. Have you ever had a moment where you connect with God and it's deep, it's meaningful, it expands your emotions to a point you almost can't handle it? Do you know what I'm talking about? The all of God, it's on them. That's a blessing. That's satisfying. Riches can't touch that. Cancer can't touch that. Our children, those of us who have children that are either mentally handicapped or physically handicapped. I got one. That situation cannot touch the awe of God coming on our lives. That is one of the blessings of this family. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believe were together. Our society gets beat up for being individualistic and having lots of problems with depression because we're isolated and we don't connect with other people. These people are together and they have, it says they have all things in common. Some of y'all say that's really gross. Some of y'all say that sounds like communism. But no, 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 watch. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The early church was a Roth IRA. It was the best one. And it should be in the now. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. There's food on the table and they're content. Do you wrestle with lack of contentment? I know I can. Put like a gun magazine in front of me or a beach house magazine. I'm going to wrestle with contentment. These people were content, and they were content that they have their food. They praised God and had favor with all people. Man, when's the last time you've heard of a church that truly preaches Jesus, that talks about sin, believes in the Bible, having favor with a megapolis? Do we have that in San Diego? Do you walk down the street and talk to non-Christians? They're like, oh, yeah, 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 the church, rad. Big fan. Not always the case, is it? Look at the blessings. And finally, the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. That brings me to my second blessing that we get in the here and now. And it's seeing people change and being changed ourselves. As Jesus is on his way to the cross, people are coming to him and they're being healed and their lives are being changed. The disciples get to see this as they walk with Jesus. The rich young ruler would have gotten to see more miracles to come had he walked with Jesus. His faith would have grown and the hold that possessions have on him would have lessened even more. Do you like changing to become a better person? That's what we get in Jesus and we get to see it in other people. Do you like seeing marriages healed? Moms and dads becoming better parents. Do you like seeing people come to faith for the first time? Do you like seeing children's church improve and get a new curriculum? Have you ever experienced a person changed by Jesus and been blown away at the work that God has done in them? Has someone ever come up to you and said, you've changed. I see a difference. You listen better. You're more patient with me and other people. You're such a better friend. You're way more reliable. 
you used to be so superficial. Mine is, you used to be so argumentative and cantankerous. And Jesus is still working on that in me. You seem so much more happy. What's causing that? You have this heart for people now that I didn't see before. Do you like that? Do you want that? Some of you are saying, I want that for my spouse. Right? (laughs) My spouse is saying she wants that for her spouse. This is one of the blessings that we get. We get the family. We get to change. We have other people change us. You will journey with Jesus and others to the cross over and over again. You're going to change. You're going to see others change. This is just two. There's actually more. We're going to just cover one. What about persecutions? Don't think I'm trying to slide that one under the rug and just be like, "Uh uh-uh, nothing to see here. Let me get crazy for a minute about persecutions. First, you might be like, I'm not cool with that. I don't want to be persecuted. Friends, I don't either. I'm not wishing this on you. I'm not wishing it on myself. But let's get crazy for a minute and let's rethink this one. Jesus was persecuted, wasn't he? How are you going to know what it's like to be made in his image without persecution? If we duck that, we're ducking knowing some aspect of our Savior's life and being made more and more conformed into his image. When we are persecuted, we will know him better, we will trust him more, we will adore him more, we will let go of the things of this world all the more. Jesus gets crazy with us. He tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, we're blessed when we're persecuted. His words, not mine. He says that those who are persecuted receive the kingdom of God and are storing up treasures in heaven that will be revealed to you one day and their eternal treasures. Not the fading glory of the Game Boy I got in the third grade for Christmas that I don't even have anymore. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says he's, been, he's learned to be content with insults, hardships, and persecutions. He even says, I'm strong in my weakness. I'm strong in my persecution. Have you ever tried to get under somebody's skin and you just can't and it annoys you to no end? You know what I'm talking about? You ever had one of those moments where somebody's trying to get at you and they just can't? They can't touch you or you can't touch them and you can tell they're getting frustrated or you're getting frustrated? That's what Paul is saying is, this is persecution reveals that oh this isn't touching me as hard as I thought it would oh it'll hurt it will hurt but it's not going to be nearly as bad and you're going to discover a power in your life that you never knew you had you have had inklings of it but you'll see how deep it truly truly runs people persecuting us can't touch what we've got in Jesus that's power That's strength. That's true strength. And that's satisfying. That's the blessings in the now. Let me just briefly cover the blessings that are to come when we enter into eternal life more fully. Jesus promises us treasures in heaven. Let me show you something of what they're like. Whenever you see age to come, eternal life or kingdom of God, Mark is using those with an equal sign. They all mean the same thing, by the way. So if you ever wonder, what is this kingdom of God thing? What is this eternal life thing? Just look them up and bounce them off of each other and you'll learn. But here are four things I'll cover for you that you'll have in eternal life. One, in Revelation 21, we learn there's no more sorrow. 
Jesus Christ will personally wipe away every tear you've ever had. There will be no mourning. There will be no need to be comforted anymore. You will have a new body. He says he's making all things new. After my deployment to Iraq, I started getting back problems that affects the way I play with my kids. I don't like it. I whine about it. I complain about it. Jesus is going to make my back new. My mom had polio as an infant, and she wears a brace on her right leg. My mom loves me so much that when I was a little boy and all I wanted to do was race, because that's what we did at school, she would get out in the yard and race me peg leg, not trying to make fun of my mom, but this is how she had to run. She would do that with me. In heaven, she will have a new body and we will be able to race and she will beat me. Is that satisfying? Do you know somebody stricken with cancer and they're on their way out? A blessing you will have is that there are no more goodbyes. Is that good news? That's a blessing and that's deeply satisfying. You will see God face to face. He will call out, Behold, I am making all things new, and you will call back, Hey, Dad. Is that satisfying? Friends, we have so much more in Jesus than we do in stuff. I hope this is helping you. I hope you're seeing this. I hope you're grasping this. And if not, I want to get to my last point. Gospel change is about God finding us and being satisfied in us. You know, if these blessings don't give you satisfaction, I think it's a sure bet that you've got some form of idolatry that you need to confront. And please, lean into that. Don't, don't, don't get defensive and lean out of it. If it doesn't touch your heart, if, if this doesn't compel worship, these blessings that you have, if they don't compel adoration of Jesus, what do you do? Let's turn to the question of the rich young ruler. Let's say, good teacher, what must we do to inherit eternal life? What do I do to awaken my soul to this greater satisfaction that you bring? Look at verse 29. See all that Jesus says people leave? Here's what you do. You turn to the one who left house and family for you. Do you know that before time began, Jesus got together with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and decided to save you? They got together and they said, we know they're going to fall. How are we going to bring them back to us? Jesus said, I'll go. I'll become a man. God became a man. A king laid down his crown. He left the halls of heaven and relationship, fellowship with his father to come be with us. He lived the life, though he was a true king, saying, I don't know where I'm going to lay my head tonight. If you know the story, he one time had to pay a tax by getting a coin out of a fish's mouth. He was that poor. He didn't have possessions. Whereas you and I will live for possessions he lived perfectly with God as his greatest possession. And now when we have faith in him and what he accomplished for us on the cross, God looks at us and sees Jesus treasuring him as his greatest possession. And he holds that to be true of you and me. We don't deserve that. But he does that for us. And it's so satisfying. 
what do you do? Turn to verse 27, where it says, It's impossible for man, but not for God. All things are possible for God. As you and I have chased material things, you and I have not held God as our highest thought, we've not only broken the six commandments that the young rich ruler didn't break, we've broken the first four as well. Union and life with God is barred for us. But Jesus lived perfectly. He did the impossible. He did not sin. He submitted perfectly to God's will. He took on God's wrath. And now we can be adopted as God's sons to where the words at Jesus' baptism, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, it's now true of you. God looks at you and he says, I am well pleased with you. Not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is satisfying. God has found you. He is satisfied with you in Christ. There is nothing that can change that. There is nothing that can touch that. Here's how you can live out this truth this week. When you see this, when you get this, when this strums the strings of your heart and you taste this deeper satisfaction, here are some things you can do. Number one, identify whatever it is that you hold higher than Jesus. Ask others to help you identify it. Journal it. Capture it. And then compare it to Jesus. Read through the Gospels. Read through the New Testament letters. See what he did and how it compares to what you're chasing. Fast from your possession. Or fast from that number one thing that you would put before God. Learn that you'll be okay without it. Be better church family to someone in our congregation, somebody you don't know. Don't just break from here and go hang out with the people that you know. Meet somebody new. Get to know them. Let them feel the love and the warmth of that family that is supposed to be a blessing. Give to our mercy and care funds. Not out of the 10%, I'll go ahead and say over and above, and I'm not trying to jimmy money out of you at all. I won't receive this money. We had four people show up last night, last uh, Sunday who needed help. Our, our care funds go down. Our mercy funds go down. We have people who are pregnant who receive meals uh, while they're laid up and while they're recovering. Give to that. That's a wonderful way to live this truth out. Share your faith this week. Join Jesus in his ongoing work of reconciling people to God. And finally... Remind yourself constantly of these blessings. They're proof that God is better, that he alone is good. In fact, hang on to this sentence right here and use it. Hit play on it. Use it for playback when you're sliding into idolatry. If God is good, then I don't have to be satisfied in anything else. Harbor, let's leave the false glory of stuff. Let's cling to the satisfaction that only he can provide. I love you.